So um, I'd like to take us to um, probably not the most familiar uh, scripture when it comes to um, the resurrection, um, but you'll see that it's entirely appropriate. And we'll start with Acts chapter 2 and reading from verses uh, 22 to 32. And of course, the context is after Pentecost and um, the disciples of the Lord Jesus now with the Holy Spirit are having a, an amazing impact on the local community in Jerusalem. And Acts 2 is, is one of Peter's sermons that I feel majors on the resurrection. And I guess the message tonight, a uh, pretty obvious one, is the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ changes everything. It just makes the whole uh, thing different. It, um, it makes Christianity stand out from any other faith. And it, it changes the um, complexion of Calvary completely and forever into a glorious, victorious thing. So um, Acts 2 verse 22, and it's Peter addressing um, basically the audience, which is people living in Jerusalem. Men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. David said about him, I saw the Lord always before me, because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body will also live in hope because you will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence. Brothers, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried and his tomb is here today. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was ahead, he spoke of the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to the grave, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of the fact. You know, it's um, a, a, an amazing um, section of a, of a sermon that was being delivered with great boldness under the power of the Holy Spirit. And in Peter's message, um, verse 24 stands out for me, but God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep hold on him. It has a powerful message that death itself is a, state, is a, a status 
we often think of death being something that we kind of pass through. But the Lord Jesus went into death and it's described in verse 24 as an agony. And by God raising him from the dead, he freed him from the agony of death. And then there's that glorious statement. It says, because it was impossible for death to keep hold on him. Now, why would Peter say that? That it was impossible for the Lord Jesus to um, stay in that state of death. Separation is what death means. And the reason why Peter said it was impossible, it's because with this newfound revelation, this newfound teacher, the Holy Spirit, um, what was once a mystery in the Old Testament in the minds of the apostles suddenly comes to life. And here is Peter saying, it's almost like he's saying, men of Israel, it's as plain as the nose on your face. If we look in the Old Testament that God said Jesus would raise from the dead and he has, and it makes all the difference in the world. I love verse 32. God raised this Jesus to life and we are all witnesses of the fact. Um, you know, there's, there's a whole range of books and, and people who've uh, committed themselves to arguing whether the resurrection of the Lord Jesus is a fact or not. And if it's not, does it matter? If it is, does it matter? And it's almost as though those, those arguments weren't even thought of at the time because the apostles were so convinced and so convincing that Peter, uh, all as he could say, God has raised Jesus to life and we are witnesses of the fact. The first um, thrill or take it as a challenge is, are we all witnesses of the fact of the resurrection? It is a delightful truth amongst Christians and um, it's the thing, as we, we've already said, that makes Christianity stand out. We're not following a great person who had an impact for a, a short lifetime um, on the um, people that were his um, contemporaries. And then he died and left a legacy of amazing truth. That's not what Christianity is about. Christianity uh, uniquely stands out in the one that we worship and we serve is alive today and we're all witnesses of the fact of course the apostles you could say had the advantage of being there at the time and we were thinking that this morning in the remembrance of how there was an invitation from the angel come in you know come and see where he lay and the women went into the tomb and it was empty and that must have had a huge impact uh, I think it's um, in the race between Peter and John. John reports that when he saw the clothes that were lying there, he was convinced. Uh, it says, I saw and I believed. My mind goes to John 20 and 29, where the Lord says to Thomas, uh, because you have seen me, and Thomas has just declared my Lord and my God, he's convinced that Jesus' resurrection is a fact. And the Lord says, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen 
and yet have believed. And we just today as uh, disciples of the Lord Jesus 2000 years on together because of our experience of him celebrate the fact of his glorious resurrection. But I love the, the New Testament statements from the Old Testament that in black and white give us a license to re-examine the Old Testament scripture that's being quoted in the New Testament and explore how that it's messianic. It's a prophecy about the Lord Jesus. Um, sometimes, you know, we, we might be looking through the Old Testament and we get to um, a scripture and we think, well, maybe that's talking about the Lord prophetically, or maybe not. Uh, you come to a New Testament quotation and uh, the Holy Spirit is making it very clear. This is a prophecy about the Lord Jesus. And that um, gives us license to go to the source of Peter's Old Testament quotation and examine it in the context of it being messianic. And the quotation is from Psalm 16. So first point is we have license because we know from the New Testament, it was talking about the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. That's one point. But the second point, which I, I find really quite fascinating is because we know it was a prophecy about the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, it gives us an opportunity to look at the psalm through the eyes of the Lord Jesus in his humanity. The one who, like me and you, was living by faith. And um, the, the human side of his experience was dependent on a faith-based relationship with God. And I'd like us just to read Psalm 16 together. It's 11 verses and try and read it with, um, I guess, through two different lenses or maybe even three. One is the lens of the writer, which is David. Um, the second is the lens of the Lord Jesus, which is the Lord Jesus in his humanity, exploring the Old Testament and discovering in it uh, truths about himself and what he would accomplish and what he would experience. And then there's the lens of ourselves looking at Psalm 16 and seeing how it can apply to us. And let's not lose sight of it. It's an Easter Psalm. It's about the resurrection, primarily about the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, but it has implications for us about our resurrection too. So let's read Psalm 16 together. Keep me safe, O God, for in you I take refuge. I said to the Lord, you are my Lord. Apart from you, I have no good thing. As for the saints who are in the land, they are the glorious ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those will increase who run after other gods. I will not pour out their libations of blood or take up their names on my lips. Lord, you have assigned me my portion and my cup. You have made my lot secure. The boundary lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Surely I have a delightful inheritance. I will praise the Lord who counsels me. Even at night, my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. 
Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My, my body will rest secure because you will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. Just very briefly, it appeals to me that the psalm has three sections. Verse one pretty much stands alone, and it's an appeal for protection. And remember, we're thinking of King David, who wrote it, appealing to God for protection. We're thinking of the Lord Jesus in his humanity, a student of the Old Testament, comes to Psalm 16, and he's now reading it through his lens of the Son of Man. And there is an appeal for protection, if you like, a prayer. Verses two to eight are a statement of confidence for life. It's telling God what we know from experience to be true about him as he accompanies us and directs us in our life. And then verse nine to 11 is a statement of confidence about the journey, I believe, through death and on into eternity. And that's really what makes it a resurrection psalm. It's almost like verses 9 to 11 are the punchline of this psalm that starts with an appeal for protection, a reflection on um, the reality of God's care for us through our lifetime, and then leading us into the wonderful truth of the resurrection. I'd just like to quickly touch on a few points from these verses. Um, so let's focus through the lens of the eyes of the Lord Jesus, if we may. And maybe we want to, we can, um, in our own meditation, uh, pick up the psalm again and perhaps draw from it other truths that we can apply to our own lives. But it begins with, keep me safe, O God, for in you I take refuge. And what we're seeing is the prayer of a God-dependent man. And um, we know that the Lord Jesus became in every way uh, the human being that we are. And he became dependent on communion, as we will see, that's a major theme through the psalm, communion with his father through faith, through reading God's word and through prayer. And here is a prayer that's being made. Keep me safe. Um, and a statement about making God his refuge. It begs a question from the Lord Jesus perspective. What did he need to be kept safe from? And I think it's a, a prayer about being kept safe through death. We'll see it later um, as we come to the, the punchline. But I think this was really what was in the mind of the psalmist and what would be in the mind of the Lord Jesus um, as he learned about the extent of his mission um, to be our saviour, that he would have to go into death for us. And of course, there's a lesson for us too, because that's a journey all of us have to make um, at some point our life on earth will come to an end and we have to 
experience death. It's so highly relevant to us. Let's move to verse two. I said to the Lord, and here we begin with the psalmist and the Lord Jesus reflections on what it's like to communion to commune with God. And it just takes me to, well, lots of different verses. Isaiah 50 is a, an obvious one about the Lord, the student. Um, my ear being opened morning by morning. That's a very familiar verse. But also my, my mind went to uh, Revelation 3 and 20 about the desire of the Lord to um, commune. Remember, I stand at the door and knock. And it's about his desire to commune with uh, his disciples and that was something that the Lord Jesus um, knew in his own earthly experience it's that intimacy and communion with his father I said to the Lord and then he goes on to say you are my Lord apart from you I have no good thing capitals the Lord um, means Yahweh it's the ultimate um, expression of of deity and um, the psalmist and the Lord Jesus is reflecting on you are my Lord and apart from you, I have no good thing. And I'll bear in mind that I think the psalm is about um, coming to terms with, with death. And here, um, death is seen in the context of the Lord only having our good um, in his mind for us. The Lord was in a very unique situation because he knew that he would have to face the wrath of God. And um, for those of us who trust in the Lord Jesus as our savior, that's something by his amazing grace, we will never have to face. But even when faced with the wrath of God, it was the goodness of God that the psalmist and the Lord Jesus would have appreciated in a very unique way, seeing beyond um, the sufferings to the goodness of God. As for the saints who are in the land, verse, verse four, I think this is, uh, uh, as for the saints who are in the land, they are the glorious ones in whom is my delight. It's a, an interesting um, expression that might mean different things to different people. So different things to David and different things to the Lord. I think the Lord was talking about his disciples or sorry, the Lord would have read this verse and would have um, appreciated from it the delight he had in his disciples. As for the saints, they're the ones who have been chosen and made holy for a purpose. That's his disciples. Um, they're described as the glorious ones in whom is all my delight. The older versions say the excellent of the earth. And I just offer it, maybe there's a scope here for um, alternative ways of reading this. But if um, the Lord was talking about the saints, um, the chosen ones who are made holy for um, special service, his delight is in them. And we know, of course, that the Lord did delight in his disciples. He just enjoyed their company. And just uh, thinking about looking at this scripture 
through my own little lens, who is it that I, whose company do I delight in? Is it the excellent of the earth, the saints? Or perhaps I am more comfortable um, rubbing shoulders with um, the people um, of the world, just a, a real challenge. The sorrows of those will increase who run after other gods. This is about idolatry. I will not pour out their libations of blood or take up their names on my lips. And we just see a single-mindedness in David's life, entirely devoted to um, Yahweh, to God. And of course, we see that um, without deviation in the life of the Lord. And again, all kinds of scriptures come to mind. Philippians 2 is one of them as the one who was the, the bond servant, single-minded in his commitment to his father and serving his father's will. Lord, you have assigned me my portion and my cup. You have made my lot secure. Now, sometimes we might think that the Lord had it tough um, because um what a what a task he was given and I, I kind of say it reverently of course he had it tough it was an amazing thing that only he could accomplish and we'll never understand the depths of of um difficulty that was involved in it but there is a sense that for the lord it was a delightful thing and he was given an assignment <laughs> And in Gethsemane, he talks about his cup, let this cup um, be taken from me if there's another way. But there is a, a sense where there's a, a conviction about what God wanted him to do. And you get it in, in John 4 as well. It's another quotation where his food was to do the will of him who sent him. And he was delighted by it. Uh, he had a clear understanding of his position and his purpose. Isaiah 50 comes back to mind again about setting his face like a flint, would not deviate from what it was that the Lord Yahweh had tasked him with. The boundary lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Surely I have a delightful inheritance. You get the sense that the Lord Jesus was delighted with his lot and of course, there were difficult times, but um, I often reflect on a verse in Luke 10 and 21. It's a favorite verse of mine. It says, at that time, full of joy through the Holy Spirit, the Lord Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth. And it's because he was being successful in his mission. He, it's that the context of that verse is sending out the 70 or the 72 and how um the their work was becoming successful and it was just as though this was a high point in the service of the, the service life of the lord jesus i will praise the lord who counsels me even at night my heart instructs me and it comes back to the idea of communion through life i love the expression that um, even at night, my heart instructs me. Um, we go through times of insomnia, maybe. I like to think of insomnia sometimes as God-given. We can't sleep, but it's an opportunity for us to commune and to pray and to reflect. 
and that's where we get our counsel. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Speaking of confidence and resolution uh, or resolve to do God's will in his life. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. I love the connection of the heart and the tongue. The heart is what we feel and the tongue is how we express what we feel. And um, there must have been times in the life and the communion of the Lord where what came out of his mouth, perhaps in those, those quiet times, times of insomnia in the night, when it would be an expression of uh, praise to his God and Father um, and the, the rejoicing that was a consequence of his experience of it. So we had the question at the beginning, keep me safe. And all these different aspects of the um, psalmist's experience through his life and the Lord's experience through his life and our experience through our lives. And then we get to a, a point which it feels like a promise. My body also will rest secure because you will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your Holy One CDK. And for the Lord, it's the promise of resurrection. For David, it was um, perhaps a promise of ultimate resurrection or a promise that there would be someone on his throne, one of his descendants who would be on his throne forever. And that's really the lesson that Peter was drawing out in Acts 2 from this scripture. You have made known to me the path of life. I think that's a lovely expression as well. It's almost like the path that leads, leads into death and through out of death into life. And that was the uh, experience of the Lord. I wouldn't want these thoughts in any way to diminish the um, horror of death that he experienced. But there was that promise of resurrection and triumph through it. You will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. And it's almost the um, ultimate statement of inheritance. Um, I forget which verse it is now. We, we've already read it, um, but it talks about, I uh, can't put my, my, my eye on it just now, but it talks about inheritance. So there it is. The boundary lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Surely I have a delightful inheritance. In the Bible, the word inheritance is maybe a little bit different than way, the way we think of it. Inheritance is about the right of ownership. And um, perhaps the ultimate, we get it from Hebrews 12 and 2, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. The ultimate goal from what the Lord would suffer and resurrection was a key um, component to it, is that he would have ultimately the right of ownership of the redeemed, those that were the product of his life and his death, um, becoming the object of God's wrath against sin and his resurrection, and it was a joy. I'd just like to leave that with us as a, an Easter scripture, Psalm 16. Explore it yourselves, see what conclusions you come to.
It's a, a request for help to be kept safe. And I would say in anticipation of death and then for the Lord Jesus himself and for us who are those that he's redeemed, the excellent of the earth, there is the promise of resurrection and eternal pleasures and joy at his right hand. Thank you.